0: Welcome to the Ivy Church Podcast. Hello, Ivy Church. Hello, Ivy Church. Welcome to Ivy Church. Jumbo Jumbo. Cariboni, Carisania, Ivy Church. Good to see you. Welcome to Ivy Church. For more podcasts and information about Ivy Church, go to ivychurch.org. 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, God struck a match and the flame of that just spread out from Jerusalem and went all around the globe. Here's a picture from when God's church first got started. Can you imagine this kind of thing happening today in our time when we're surrounded by greed and we're encouraged to consume more and more while at the same time we hear about debt rising, not only in individuals, but also as national strategies to combat debt and the cost of living making many wonder if there's any point in living, much less any solutions to the crisis. Acts 2 verses 42 to 45 says, and all who believed, all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I'd encourage you to go back and check out the series so far as we're going on a journey with God to become that kind of church again, a supernatural community that's all about Jesus, because that's the kind of church that changes lives, changes the world, changes people's forevers in eternity. We've seen how they were committed, how they covenanted together to live out the truths and promises and commandments of scripture in the way that was very countercultural. but as they looked at the word and worship on one another. They believe this book is not just a good book with some good suggestions to be discussed, it's the word of God to be obeyed. So they practised what they preached and they prayed passionately and they gathered collectively to worship the risen Lord in spirit and in truth. They loved one another, so much so that as we've just read, They shared, even sold their possessions, so that within a short space of time, there was a supernatural reality operating in that church where by Acts 4, it says, there were no needy people among them. Can you imagine that? How could it happen? It is supernatural. Supernatural generosity is a sign of the spirit of God at work in our lives. These people love to give more than those around them live to get. That's why it's supernatural. Poverty was eradicated the only way it can be, by generosity. See, we can talk about equality, that's the buzzword today. That's the natural, that's the world's solution and standard. But the Bible goes way beyond equality to generosity. Supernatural generosity is the only way you beat poverty. So. You can review all those marks so far of this supernatural community in the series. But really, if you missed last week's, please go and listen, because this is going to be huge for us in the future. Even if the world might say the next W is weird, we want to see wonders. The word worship, the word one another and wonders must never cease because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he sent his Holy Spirit to be with us and in us, and he said he wanted, he expects that because of that, his people will not only do the same kind of things that he did, but that we'll actually do greater things than he did, because he has gone to be with the Father. In that first church in Acts, we read about the apostles healing people and delivering people from demonic oppression, as Jesus did, but not only that, People are bringing the sick into Peter's shadow and they get healed. Paul is sending out handkerchiefs, cloths that he's prayed over, and they are being put on sick people and they get healed too. Jesus never did that. Jesus never did those things. It's a supernatural church. How would that extend to wealth? Because one of the ways that the world wondered as they looked at the church was in the way that they handled what the Lord gave them. They didn't worry, they trusted. They didn't hoard, they helped one another. I mean, all of them, do you notice that word all? This was one of the markers that you were part of this, that you were part of the Jesus following movement. It showed whether you were in or out. At times you might receive might receive more or the times you gave more but this was what it meant to live out your faith in Christ. See, Jesus himself never worried about money. He said it was a very little thing and he commanded his followers not to worry either. He said because your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. He said if you want to be rich be rich towards God. Not just thinking about this life which will always be over quicker than any of us expect. When Peter was worried about paying his taxes, Jesus miraculously gave him a solution. And the solution involved him going and working and doing something a little harder and trusting God a little bit more. He told a rich young man who wanted to follow him that for him, this would mean he had to reorder his priorities, starting with his possessions. And he doesn't set the bar any lower for any of us. So, as we look again at that passage in Acts chapter 2 that describes this first church that made the whole world say, wow, with all these wonders, the supernatural doesn't just stop there with miracles of healings, etc. We want to talk about this other W that very much goes against the natural. It was the way these people thought, and, thought about and used their, their wonga, or wealth, money, possessions. At this point, they were not even called Christians. Other people called them that later on. They were called followers of the way because Jesus is the way and their new way of life of following Jesus brought about a whole new way, a radical perspective of relating to the things of this world because now they didn't belong to me. I belong to Jesus. So what I have belongs to Jesus and we belong to each other as his family. Are we living that way? Are you living like a follower of the Jesus way with regard to your wealth, or are we still living like the world? These days, we look at the world and we can see the gap between rich and poor getting wider and wider and wider. After Italy, the UK has the second highest gap in income inequality in Europe. I'm Gonna show you some graphs. This graph shows how disposable income is shared among households in the UK, where the poorest fifth of society has only 8% of the total income whereas the top fifth has 36%. The wealth gap has only widened since 2020 when the Office for National Statistics calculated that the richest 10% of households hold 43% of all wealth, while the poorest 50% of people own just 9%. Gerald Grosvenor, the sixth Duke of Westminster, was asked by the Financial Times if he had any advice for young people who wanted to make their fortune. Make sure, the hereditary peer replied, they have an ancestor who was a very close friend of William the Conqueror. Well, works for him. Look at this graph. What a picture. It shows that this year, 2023, the richest 50 families in the UK hold more wealth than half of the UK population. That's the other, that's 33.5 million people. It's all right for some. It really is. Now, I look at these pictures and these graphs and you know what it tells me? There's enough to go round. There's more than enough to go round. The problem is, it doesn't. It doesn't go round. The vast majority of it sticks. It stays exactly where the rich want it to stay, while they and their heirs get more and more. Much of it, of course, is wasted by schemes and policies that we're always being told are being enacted so that they will help the poor. They just don't. And I'm not being party political here. To be honest, I think they're all about as bad as they have been in the whole of my lifetime. And in various ways, getting worse. So pretty much as bad as each other with just different biases, because the idea of going into politics to serve the people, not your own pride or position, has been all but abandoned by way too many for far too long. It's a serious issue for serious prayer and for Christians to go into politics and be different. But the answer, as I look at that unequal distribution, isn't ever just that they stop being greedy or they learn to share and give more. It's that we do. Because you know what, on a global scale, despite what the media tells us every day, and yes, I know some are struggling. I also know what it's like to struggle too. We lost a house last time the interest rate soared in the 1990s, when I was on a really low salary as a trainee vicar. We couldn't afford a mortgage rate with payments that went up to about 14% interest, as I recall. But if we get out more in the nations too, we'll soon see we are not the ones to be most pitied in this world. Why else do you think other people so desperately want to get on boats or however they can get here to come here? See, I always tend to compare up with those who have more, but there's something God starts to do in our hearts when we compare down with those who have less. When I talk with Gail and Aidan and those who work with them and hear about people that are being helped through our CAP, are Christians Against Poverty Debt Help? Or when I travel and go to various nations, like I was recently in Egypt again, and I saw the place where 260,000 persecuted Coptic Christians in Cairo live on the city rubbish dump. They call it garbage city. Now, you might think, who's going to give to them? How can, how can they give? What could they give? And this is an awful place. The stink just never leaves you. It kind of goes into you. The sights can't be forgotten. These men, women, and children eking out an existence, recycling the whole of the city's rubbish. But at the same time, they give the best they have to Jesus Christ. They dug a cave out of the side of a mountain. This is where the slum dwellers go and praise Jesus. 15,000 at a time with scenes from the gospel carved into the walls all around them, depicted to tell the stories of his life and his death and his resurrection. Amazing place for to go and visit, unforgettable. And when I go there, I'm personally really challenged about what I give for God and what matters to him. I kind of heard him say, So what's your excuse when I think of everything that I've been given to steward to look after for him during this one short life? See, I look at this supernatural community in scripture that was all about Jesus there in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. And we can look at what history tells us about the world in their time. And guess what? The first century world was set up with incredible disparity of haves and have nots. In many ways, it was the same kind of a world. You have an overall system of monarchy where Caesar, of course, was at the very top of the pyramid and all the senators and prefects and way below them was everybody else and right down to the slaves who formed up to 40% of the population of the Roman Empire. So wherever you were on the scale, you could sum up this system as what's mine is his. It all belongs to him, to the emperor, to the monarch. That's why when they challenged Jesus on whether God's people should pay taxes here on the earth, he took a coin that would have had the face of Caesar on it and he said, give, or more literally, give back, give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar's. But then he went on to say, and give back to God what belongs to God, what has his image on it, which is, of course, yourself. The other system in place in all the nations that the Romans conquered was that they allowed enterprise to be rewarded. Capitalism was similarly layered from the local rulers and merchants and the tax collectors, right the way down to everybody below them, buying and selling, whether they were soldiers or fishermen or carpenters or whoever. And by the way, God alone helped the widows and the orphans and the beggars and the lepers. There was nothing for them. And this was just seen as the natural order. What's mine? is mine. What's mine is mine. This shows us that human nature hasn't changed over the centuries before or since. Society structures and cultures all around the world in every age just repeat that kind of thing too, right up until today. There are autocratic and democratic versions of all of these systems economically. Now, in case anybody wants to talk about communist societies, where you might tell me supposedly what's ours is ours, The truth of that and how it actually works out in a fallen world corrupted by sin is pretty evident, where it's been tried in in places like China or North Korea in the world today. See how you like it if you went there. Or, Or look back to Stalin in recent history for the reality rather than the utopian ideal. Or I'd point such idealist communists to George Orwell's Animal Farm. Have you ever read that? He gets claimed today by both neoconservatives and neo-Marxists, but Orwell was, for me, just a realist. He wanted to depict human nature through his fable of the animal kingdom on Manor Farm. If you've read the story, you'll know the animals come and take over, but despite the propaganda of their so-called equality revolution that promises peace and prosperity and fairness for everybody because all are equal, the reality of that broken system is that in any such ideology, alternative viewpoints are brutally dealt with because all are equal, but some are more equal than others. So again, somebody says, what's ours is mine. The freedom that this so-called equality, even in many of its forms now, that are taking over in our educational systems and our media and our politics, is the tolerant equality it pretends to offer ends up even more unequal hierarchical and oppressive than any of those who previously ran the farm. So we've looked at some of the main ways this matter of wealth has been supposedly distributed according to human nature. And it raises the question, is that it? Is that the only way it can happen? Or is there any other way that we can use money and possessions rather than being used by them? And then again, we look at Acts chapter two and we see the supernatural. Of the kingdom being enacted on the earth. When the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost, something started that was supernatural, that became the ecclesia of Jesus Christ. In anybody who became part of it as an individual, as they changed how they saw God, and themselves and what life was really all about and the need around them. Thousands were joining from day one from all across the empire, multiple nations and races and sexes, ages, people of all kinds of educational backgrounds and none and social status and languages from the day when they all gathered in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. As huge crowds responded, one by one they were baptised and the believers started to form something new on the earth it was incredible things that happened as they they would gather and go from they would go in small medium or large groups and where they were all together in that supernatural community and rather than capitalism or communism it says they all had all things in common that word common it does mean ordinary but this was anything but it was radically countercultural then. And if the church, if the ecclesia of God went back to this, it really would be now. Radical generosity defeating scarcity and poverty. How? This was a system where everybody was equal at the cross. Nobody was thinking they were more equal than anybody else. They all knew that we're undeserving sinners saved by grace through faith. Called to be saints, wherever they came from, whatever any other status or whatever they'd done before they met Jesus and he forgave them and gave them new life, a new purpose. Transformation happened on the inside. And here's what happened now because of that. They didn't look at possessions and houses and gold or silver anymore and say, what's mine is mine. They didn't even look at their lives that way anymore. This is what changes everything now and then. They were not consumers now, but contributors, because they said, what's mine is his. I belong. I belong to King Jesus. He died for me. I owe him everything. He gave everything I have to me, so now I do what he wants me to do with it. What he tells me to do in his word, with his wealth, that he shared with me. I want to honour Jesus. What's mine is his. His. They all thought like that. It was supernatural and the world around said, wow, scripture and history records the early church became this community where members of the king's family, scholars, slaves, priests and former prostitutes, merchants and military, rich and poor, young and old were all together and shared everything. If you have a need, I have a need. What's mine is yours. What's mine is his. So, When it comes to this mark of the church, my question, how much is this true of you? Whatever we've done with what he's given us before, how much today are we using to reflect that we love what he loves, which shows very clearly because we give what he says, generously, joyfully, obediently, faithfully. Imagine if we all did that. The Greek word for common there is Koinos, and it means they all shared this life together. They all worshipped together. They all, all ate together. Catherine, who works with me here at Ivy and handles a lot of the finance, said to me when I talked about this, I imagine what could happen if everybody at Ivy tithed. 10%, word means tithe, tithe means 10%, because you could argue the toss over the percentages, but when I look at scripture, the Lord who gives us 100% doesn't ask for 100 back or 50 or 40, he could do. What would he like? What would he be like if everybody gave 10% or started to aim more and more towards that? Do you even know what percentage you give? He does. But it starts when we tell him, What's mine is yours, Lord. And then we do what he says. Stories told of a king that had a great feast. And he said he would provide all the meat and the vegetables and the fruit and the music and the desserts. And every servant was commanded to bring the best wine, just one pint, and pour it into the huge wine vat that was gonna be shared by everybody at the feast. One villager set off happily carrying his best, but then he thought, oh, well, my contribution can't really matter that much in all those gallons. He turned back for home as he started to think about getting wine that wasn't actually his very best. He'd keep that for himself. And then as he walked back home, he thought about, well, oh, maybe he could water it down because, you know, people wouldn't be able to see it. And when he got home, he thought, well, actually, why not just put water in my bottle? Nobody can tell. And he got there early and while everybody was dancing, he came up and he poured his offering into the vat. All day long, other people came up from the village and they danced happily up to the vat. Everybody was clapping and cheering as they all poured their contribution, the very best wine that they had to offer into the big vat for the king. And that evening as the king blessed the meal, that he had provided, his servant took a silver chalice over to the wine vat because the best that was offered must first go to the king who provided the feast. And then he drank it and he found his cup was filled with water. Let's pray. Lord, you gave the very best for us. You gave your son to save us. Help us now and today and tomorrow to make decisions that honour you our great king who provides all things richly for our enjoyment so we can say it and mean it. Lord, what's mine is yours.